Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's program from the Commonwealth Club. You can find more of our programs at commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and your co-host for today. We're presenting a discussion on racial inequality and Pride Month. No one would have predicted that by now we would have 40 million unemployed and an economy in free fall, a deadly pandemic raging across the country and around the world, and millions of people mobilized into massive protest marshals in nearly every city and even many small towns. But what people have predicted for years is that the deep-seated structural racism, discrimination, and violence against African-Americans would have to be dealt with. The recent killings of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery are only two such senseless, senseless deaths in a long, long list. It's a topic we've discussed here on the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club a number of times. And today we're going to discuss it with some community leaders in light of June being Pride Month. Now, Michelle Miao is the host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, John. And thank you to all of you for joining us for this special program. Some of you may have uh, been planning to tune in at this hour to have a discussion with Cameron Esposito with a new biography that, uh, or a new memoir that uh, she put out, but we are postponing that uh, due to where we're at, the climate, the conditions that we're in, and also here on the program, it's important for us to check in with our family members. So that's what we're doing. I'm pleased to introduce to you our panelists today. Aria Saeed is back, who's the co-founder and executive director of Compton's Transgender Cultural District. Natalie Thompson, who's the vice president of Records Management and also of Capital Pride Alliance uh, of Washington, D.C., also the vice president and global outreach for Enterprise and International uh, and Global Community and the Secretariat and co-chair for Global Pride. We also have Carolyn Weisinger back. Thank you for always, always accepting our invitation to come back. And you do some great work here at the club board president, San Francisco Pride, and also the host of the C-Dub show. Thank you, family, for joining us today. I think the first question um, that, I mean, we can't talk about anything else other than to check in with all of you and make sure, you know, we, we, uh, we, we ask this very important question. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Let's start with Carolyn. Um, I would say that I'm a bit exhausted. Um, you know, this is the time that's always busy for most of us for Pride Month. And I think it's a little bit more, it's a little bit busier because, you know, we really want to do things like we're doing today as far as elevating, you know, Black voices, Black LGBTQ voices. And, you know, the question became, well, should we postpone Pride? Absolutely, we shouldn't post pride. Instead, we should be having conversations like this where we talk about how pride and the Black liberation struggle are intimately linked. So, you know, doing that work is a lot is in addition to the, you know, everyday logistics works of Pride Month. So a little bit tired, but I'm happy to be able to do this work. So, Natalie? I think what Carolyn said was absolutely perfect. Um, we have to address what's going on within our community, the intersections of our community. We all are so intertwined and so interconnected that it's important to talk about how there are Black LGBTQ lives that matter and they are part of the same struggle. And so how I'm feeling right now is that this is not the time to be silent. This is not the time to do nothing. This is the time to be active. And this is a requirement of everybody, in my, in my opinion, that there's so much work to be done and we all have a part to play. 
And that doesn't mean you have to be at a protest, but share resources, talk to a friend, learn something new that you didn't know before. Be open and willing to have these types of discussions so that we can be a better world. And Aria. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, I think I'm in a space, um, I think I actually shared this with you yesterday, Michelle, but um, where I'm having moments of extreme joy um, and in moments of grief um, and in rage is definitely um, consistent. And it's, um, it's a very complex time to be in America um, and witnessing the consistent injustice but it's also amazing to witness how this time around so many people are coming forward in solidarity and and having very intentional conversations with their people on how to shift the culture that we currently have. Um, And not just sort of legislative injustice or like a culture of violence against Black people and, and, um, and disenfranchisement and oppression, but also how there needs to be a shift in the atmosphere going forward, that this can't, it can't stop with the protest. Um, that the protest is actually the, the precursor for the next phase of our era, um, of our culture to, to really change. We've talked about police killings for years of, of African-American men and women. Um, there were a number of protests, of course, around Ferguson, Missouri, why do you think now this has, again, like you said, Aria just said, not just gotten people out in the streets, but seems to actually have people having communicate, you know, these communications and these talks that maybe they weren't having before? Is it because, frankly, we're stuck at home, we have no jobs to go to, you know, we really, more people than just the people who have been discriminated against for years and years and years are suddenly feeling very vulnerable and a kinship with perhaps people who have been going through even worse stuff for even I mean that, that that's more a question I don't mean to give that as an answer but why do you think this happened now um for me I think we've seen tons of videos right and I think uh violence against black people and murder of black people has become so normalized through sort of these tapings and 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 video shares and, and Facebook live streams or, or what have you of murder, but I think this one in particular of George Floyd, watching a man unarmed, literally, and watching someone intentionally murder a man and that man screaming out for his deceased mom, um, it it did something to people. I think people's humanity um, got attached in this is absolutely wrong, because there's also been a tendency whenever um, Black people are murdered by the state to justify the action of the state, right? So it's like, oh, well, Mike Brown possibly had a weapon or Trayvon Martin had a hoodie or, you know what I mean? Like, there's always been these ways where there's been an insert of, you know, well, they were up to no good and if this, then that. Um, and there was no denying it in this particular instance uh, with George Floyd being murdered on camera. Um, there, was, there was no denial. And I think people were activated to respond, um, is, is my opinion. Natalie, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of a number of things. I think people have been cooped up and they're starting to pay a little bit more attention to the news. It's just we're inundated with news right now. And so when this happened, you've got people with a bit more time on their hands or wanting to escape. And then this is the information that they're given. And I do agree. This was one of those undeniable situations where this was unacceptable. There was no denying it. And you still hear people talking about, well, he could have had something in his system or he was a criminal or, you know, he has all these children coming out and saying, oh, I miss my dad. And but he wasn't a good father. And it's just everything that, you know, we hear people are trying to discredit what actually happened. And this man was murdered. There's no denying that this was unacceptable. But there's always going to be people who want to play the, you know, devil's advocate card and say, well, maybe he deserved it. And I think in this case, it's it's really hard to play that card. And uh, I think people are just really starting to pay attention because it's happening all the time. And there comes a point where you're just like, enough is enough. And I think more people are beginning to recognize that maybe I was ignorant to what's happening in this world. Maybe I didn't have a clear perspective of what's going on. And now I'm, and I speak about, you know, non-people of color they're starting to see, maybe I wasn't aware. And maybe this is the time I really need to take notice and say, okay, this is wrong. And you see it happening around the world with, you know, marches and solidarity from around the world that people are paying attention. And they're also having the opportunity to tell their stories, because this isn't just an American issue. This is a worldwide issue that people all over face. And so I Unfortunately, this happened, but I think that we are at a breaking point where we can actually make some tangible change. Carolyn? Um, I think that I've actually struggled with that question a bit. I was saying how I have been a bit stoic at times because, you know, I'm at 41, I've seen so many videos of so many people that have been murdered to me, which have been undeniable. But yes, they spend, we, we spend an awful lot of time with the state trying to discredit them with their family members having to defend them, you know, in death about how, you know, a person selling CDs on the street, it doesn't mean that you should choke them out, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I've felt a bit of anger about people who are just now getting it. Um, but I think that as far as the reason so many people have been activated, I think we can't underestimate the, the um, addition of coronavirus. You know, like, like Natalie said, so many people have been cooped up so many people are at home just sitting in front of computers and sitting in front of TVs um, and, and watching this video or, or reading articles. So many people who are now getting unemployment and have time to, they got, you know, as we say in the internet, they got time. They got all the time in the world to go out and protest. Um, but I think it's one question that we've been particularly asking is what has it been about George Floyd's death that has activated so many non-Black people? You know, I, I come from a little bitty town in Louisiana. Um, it's one of those towns where they imagine that they don't have racial injustice and they don't have problems, even though last year, or maybe it was the year before that, if you've ever seen the video of the young man who was hit on the on the highway while he was changing a tire and drug, that was in my hometown in Louisiana. Um, and this was the first time that they ever actually had a, basically a die-in in this little bitty town. And you really saw a lot of these rural white people, you know, not defending, you know, the death, but actually defending the black people who were standing up, which shocked me. So, you know, I don't really know the answer, but something about this has, it might be a new generation who has more access to information. 
You know, I saw a video of a, a, a young white girl arguing with her parents. I've never seen anything like that before, but it reminded me of kids who I've taught in school. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why this, this particular death at this time when so many people were able to watch it, so many people to have access to information just contributed to a kind of combustion of sorts. Oh. You know, uh, Carolyn and um, Natalie and, you know, and already brought up uh, a couple points, especially around it's at June 1st is LGBTQI Pride Month. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, a lot of LGBTQ organizations have stepped up, put out statements of solidarity, even uh, through social media had participated in Blackout Tuesday. Um, would love to hear kind of what your emotions were, and what you're feeling with regards to the solidarity statements and uh you know how do we how do we expand upon that because i think it's different you know when your discrimination exceeds or or it's more than you know di discrimination of sexual orientation gender identity and so on uh we'll start with natalie it was a there are mixed emotions around that i love the solidarity and i love the coming together um, but for me, it's not enough to send out a statement. There's got to be action behind it. And so I had this conversation with the groups that I'm in. You know, we can sit here and we can put out a statement in solidarity and say that we support Black lives and that we're here to help. Um, but if there's no action, then the statement is, is worthless. And so I'm waiting to see what these organizations and these pride groups do moving forward to say that we're going to put some action behind our words. And I know that the groups that I'm a part of, we are actively inside those conversations right now to look at how we could potentially be contributing to some of this, uh, to some of these issues and what we need to do. How are we going to assess our relationships with certain partnerships? How are we going to assess our relationships with the police? Um, and that's the reason why I joined the organization that I joined, because I think it's important that if you want to be a part of the change, we need people on the inside as well as we need people on the outside. You know, we need somewhere in the middle. And one of the things that we have to address are, does everyone feel safe? Does everyone feel heard? Does everyone feel like this is for them, that they have a seat at the table? And if they don't, then there's work for us to do. And that is something that I'm here to do. Aria? Yeah, so the question was about orgs making statements in thought. Can you repeat it for me? Yeah, sure. No problem. No problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, this is all happening and buttoning up on, uh, upon Pride Month. And so to be uh, LGBTQI and then also to be, uh, you know, African-American, while all of our Pride organizations and other LGBTQ organizations are putting out statements of solidarity, um, how does how do you react to that when you know your discrimination and your lived experiences uh, isn't just limited to just sexual orientation and gender identity? Um, I'm gonna be slightly unfiltered. Um, a lot of these organizations do not care about Black Lives, um, and and that sharing the, the the Black Lives Matter statement or crafting a statement um, is just trendy, right? It's to save face um, so that their constituents and, um, and their communities and their funders and donors and what have you um, feel good 
about the organization during this time and its ability to weather um, a climate shift that we're having where we're actually asking for accountability, not just from the state, but also from people who proclaim to support. And so for me, I'm like, if you're posting a statement on, you know, your solidarity with Black Lives Matter, I want to see the receipts. I want to see who's on the board. I want to see who the Black folks are in leadership. And it better it better be more than just one. It better be more than just one for me. I think we're in a space right now where these organizations, and I'm going to bring them in, they need to actually craft a statement of what they will be doing going forward with the education that's happening. Um, it's not enough to make a statement, not for me. Um, and as a Black trans woman, often, for me, I can only speak of my my industry, and, and I work in social justice and nonprofit specifically, and there has been a level of anti-Blackness in San Francisco, um, in San Francisco city government, and its nonprofit culture um, that has been going on long before I was born, um, and has made it very difficult um, for work that centers Black people to actually come to fruition. Um, and often the, the statement is, um, oh, well, you know, our deliverables, like, we're, we'll, we'll hire Black outreach people to, to do outreach or what have you and um, work with Black community. And it's just, it's not enough. Um, I'm not buying it. It's, it's still 2020, even though 2020 has been a really crazy year for all of us <laughs> and not the year that we thought it would be. I just, I don't think it's enough. I think there has to be actionable items that that these organizations are going to implement within their own structure, um, within their own governance, um, and how they're also going to create a culture that supports Black folks in that space, um, and Black trans people, and Black queer women. And do you know what I mean? Um, that That's my stance. And so... For any organization that's posted, I have asked, you have 48 hours to post a screenshot of your board and their demographic. Um, and, you know, obviously folks don't do that, but they, you know, it's trendy to post, you know, we're in, we're in solidarity. Don't look at us. Don't look at us. We're, we're, we're with you all. Um, and if you're going to be with us, you need to really be with us. There we have it. Aria just opened the floodgates. So, Carolyn, add to that. Well. <laughs> I, I would first say, you know, to Aria's point about being trendy, it's like during riots when people paint black owned on their on their business not to get burned down. It's kind of the same thing. And I think the most interesting thing going back to what I said earlier, or maybe I didn't say it, maybe I'm getting all my events confused. You know, it, it was so interesting that when I first we did multiple statements from San Francisco Pride. We did my own statement and then there was another statement from Fred Lopez, our executive director. And it was shocking to me how many people didn't know the true story of Stonewall. And it was only shocking to me for about five minutes because as I said in, later on in another statement, we have whitewashed Pride to the point where we don't recall any of the, of the Black people that were actually part of the building. Of, I mean, Pride, Stonewall was a defense of Black bodies. Stonewall was started by a Black trans woman who was defending a Black butch woman. And you got to remember back in 69, being Black and butch was essentially, and if I'm wrong, Aria, correct me, but 
being butched back in 1969 was essentially saying that you're you're living as a man because that was the only way that black butches could be safe. So, you know, it's a very particular way that that incident happened. And people don't remember that. You know, a lot of white people who reached out to me said they had no idea that there was an actual black butch woman involved, which means to me they probably allowed themselves to forget that Marsha P. Johnson was black. You know, I've, I've heard and seen a lot of things about Marsha P. Johnson that was shocking in LGBTQ media. Um, and last night I actually made a statement at Pride where I talked about how, you know, we have a culture where a, a lot of organizations have been created by Black LGBTQ, I'm going to say, forefathers and foremothers who were created 25, 30, 40 years ago to support Black people because there was no space for them in Black LGBTQ movements. You know, David Johns from the National Black Justice Coalition talked about how when place, when neighborhoods, quite frankly, like the Castro, were created, they were not created for Black people. They were created for white gay people to, cre- to create political and social capital and power. So you all, you've always had that, that, that element where Black people were here. And, you know, yes, we can have ball culture, no shade to ball culture. We all love it. But, you know, we know that people steal from ball culture. You know that people steal from Black LGBTQ, LGBTQ culture. And Black straight people do that all the time. I always tell people about uh, about Cardi B when she does, does it. Okay, they were doing that on Noah's Ark 15 years ago. So, you know, there's there's so many layers to all of that. And I think that it, look, I've lost track of the question by now. I knew Michelle wanted me to unleash. I think that for me, it goes back to something that Aria said about the racism towards Black people in San Francisco and the racism towards Black LGBTQ people in particular. You know, um, I've spoken with Aria about having whole hit pieces written about me by, by LGBTQ media um, in San Francisco for no other reason than being, you know, the mean Black lady who's carrying out whatever is going on in San Francisco Pride. And, and as a machine, Pride allows that to go on unchecked. You know, I've I've stated it out loud, like y'all know this is racist, right? And people are like, oh yeah, you're right. Like they they literally don't see it. And the thing that bothers me is not even just in LGBTQ movements, but we don't a lot of white people and non black people don't see it until somebody dies or until we literally have to point it out. So right now we're in a, a space right now where so many organizations are quote unquote pivoting because we're in a moment and they want to center black lives. But as I told, honestly, as I told someone in our organization, I said, you wouldn't have to pivot if you were already centering Black lives. It wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't take a lot of work. So I think that this is a, a time right now, number one, where we need to be educating people about the, the about Black queer history. We need to be educating people about the spaces and the organizations that were created because Black people were not welcome. So we need to talk about even things like the Atlanta Black Pride, which is a baby of LA Black Pride because they did not feel safe and comfortable at regular LA Pride. So we need to talk about all of those. But I, I want to also say, like Natalie and, and Aria said, we need to not treat this as a moment. Like people need to, this needs to be the, the standard going forward. Can I interject something else? Yeah, yeah, please. I think, I think what people forget is that the LGBTQ community is a microcosm of the larger United States community. The same issues that are happening in the South are happening inside the LGBTQ community. It's no different. And so when people talk about, oh, I'm queer or, you know, however they identify underneath the rainbow, it's I know what oppression looks like. And they want to like attach being part of that community with knowing exactly what it means to be black in America. And they are not the same. I'm sorry to tell you, they are not the same. 
you if you are a queer white man, you will never know what it's like to be black in America. I don't care how you know oppressed you think that your life is, just talk to a trans black woman. Just have a conversation. Just understand that you will never get it. And so I want us to get to a place where we stop making people, you know, we start holding people accountable for the fact that these aggressions happen within our community. And just because you are part of this community does not mean you're somehow immune to, or it doesn't mean that you're somehow, you know, uh, cut off from, you know, ever questions or, you know, as much as I enjoy being a part of this movement and enjoying being part of these organizations, I still feel like an outsider because I'm not uh, a cisgendered white male. I still feel like this isn't my movement because I'm not this. And at the end of the day, that's unacceptable. And so if we're going to change it, like they have to take a step back and check themselves, which doesn't always happen. And it's hard to say to somebody, you need to check yourself when it, it feels like we always get this dialogue of, oh my God, why does it always have to be a race issue? You know, why does it always have to come and be this? You know, I'm here for you. I love you. We're in this together. But yet you take no action at all or even self-reflection at all to even see how you're contributing to it. (laughs) No, no, thank you. Thank you, John. I actually wanted to to ask a question um, that would segue to that. Is that okay? Or do you have a burning question you want to jump in? Because I know we we like to tag team. Well, I think that, you know, there's like three questions that I wrote down that um, I'll just uh, put it all into one. We started to also see discussions online with, uh, you know, other activists within the LGBTQ movement who reminded us that, uh, you know, pride was a riot. And then I and then I also heard about the white night riots and people wanted to remind us about the white night riots. And if you don't know, you know, that was that happened in San Francisco after the assassination of Harvey Milk um, and Dan White, uh, the murderer, w- didn't get a, a, a tough enough sentence. It was actually horrible. And uh, a riot ensued here in San Francisco. And so but at the same time, I, I was conflicted as a person in the community because I didn't feel that it was productive to conflate the two, um, you know, the uh, what the black community uh, is going through and, and, you know, saying that er, we need to be rioting uh, because as queers, you know, we are used to rioting. I'd love to hear your perspective on what building equity actually means. And if this is the moment, this is the revolution, this is the moment of change. Most people out there protesting are calling for the defunding of the, of the police calling for, you know, investments in our, in our community. would love to hear your perspective on, you know, not conflating the two and actually talking about the solutions for change and how us as non-Blacks uh, need a part need to be a part of that change. We'll start with Aria. Oh, I'm trying to get my, my thoughts together. Um, so what does equity look like now? Yeah, because I think that's that's part of it is building equity and not just go. You know what I mean? Like I think we we we're talking about it. We're starting to talk about it. And it's a, and it's a global conversation. This is not just in America. You've got thousands upon thousands of folks who are protesting. Um, and yes, mad as hell over you know the killing of George Floyd and the police brutality. But you also have black leaders out there back on on the streets 
polling in their community calling for, you know, the defunding of, of police and law enforcement, calling for more investments into community, education, healthcare. I think that's what equity looks like. And then you you touch upon it. I mean, as the executive director of the very first transgender cultural district, that is equity, in my opinion. You've got a piece of the city, you know, that is recognizing uh, Black trans women in that neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I think in the context of the LGBT community, um, something that I would like to see us build out is to really stop minimizing the fact that anti-Blackness is ever-present even in, in queer spaces. Um, and just because you sleep with Black people does not mean... Aria! <laughs> I mean, let's... I mean, I'm just... You know, I've been... So, context. I have been on social media. I've been seeing, you know, a lot of white and non-Black people of color, queer folks, sort of say, stop protesting, stop this. Um, you know, all lives matter or all queer people or, or what have you. And, you know, we're not, Audre Lorde says we're not single issue people. And I think people ignore that our experience um, as Black, queer, and trans people is a compounded worldview, right? Um, And I think in terms of, um, you know, I think as a queer community, we've also become distant from rioting, right? We have not had to riot for our rights in a while. And so there is a way in which um, when Black people are writing, it is heavily critiqued in a way that it's not. If it's queer folks about, you know, the overturn of Popsy or... Okay, gay marriage okay. not passing the first time around, right? Prop um, 8. And then, you know, what did we do? Trans people, we said it's more than gay marriage and nobody listened to us, right? <laughs> nobody was listening to us. It was like, it was about gay marriage. Gay marriage needs to be legalized. And, and we'll, we'll get to Black trans people later, right? And so there's been this tendency in the LGBT community to really minimize how anti-Blackness plays a role. Um, and yeah, and so in the context of LGBT community um, and, and building equity, we have to have efforts that are led and informed by Black, queer, and trans people um, when it comes to social justice. Uh, we have to be in the room we can't just be a population that's written into a grant. We actually have to be in the room and have a decision-making role. When we think about like socialization, it's not enough to have a Black DJ and to play Black music and to have a white and non-Black people of color audience. It's no longer okay. If we're not making ways for access, you know, because when we talk about the Castro, I think something that gets uh, glossed over is how um, those clubs banned Black people, right? And they found ways to do that. Those nightclubs, those bars um, have had a long racist history of not allowing Black people in um, into those spaces, Black queer people. Um, yeah. And, you know, of course, um, our advocacy with the trans district is to create our own solutions. And that was that was birthed out of the fact that no one was giving us opportunity. Even queer people were not giving black and brown trans people opportunity, economic advancement opportunity to get out of our disparity. And so it's very popular to talk about the term privilege, right? And to sort of, you know, 
we always do this thing, I think culturally now, where we're like, oh, I'm a person of privilege. And I'm like, I'm tired of having that conversation. What are you doing with that privilege in the space that you're in um, to shift things around? Um, that's how the, the transgender district was even born. Um, when you go to San Francisco pre-COVID and I'm sure after, and you go to Starbucks and you go to these different companies, and do you ever see trans people there? No. Black trans people, brown trans people, no. It, we don't. We don't have economic power in the same way that gay white people have developed, right? Or political power in the same way that uh, gay white people have developed. And that needs to be extended going forward. Um, and our voices need to be in the room instead of advocated on behalf of. I know that was a lot, I'm sorry. No, no, it's the question was meant for you to say a lot. I know there's a lot there in the question in itself. Uh, Carolyn. Um, I think first about the conflation of white, what was it, white nights riot? Or, yeah, it's just the you know, the overall rioting, the history of rioting in the LGBTQ movement. We know, we obviously, yes, we know that that's part of our history. Um, uh, that is why we, you know, started Pride. Um, but I, I, it just was my personal opinion, actually, that I thought conflating the two, the, you know, Black rights movement and rioting and the black community and also, uh, you know, the LGBTQI community kind of takes away from uh, what you, but all three of you had talked about in the beginning of the program, which is your own lived experiences. And they're, they're not, they're necessarily the same. Uh, that was part one. And then part two of it was, it's one thing to make a connection right now. Uh, if you're non-black and LGBTQI, um, that, that this is happening, the injustices that we face, we're all, in this together well the conversation shouldn't just you know stop here you know, uh, on the streets uh, as we're protesting what is the change and i listed a couple examples of black leaders who are out there calling for defunding of the police putting more money into black communities those are two things uh would just love to hear your perspective on um, you know what that change might look like and and even further explain you know, why conflating the two could be uh, ineffective. Conflating the two is ineffective because it goes back to number one, as I said, the 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 neighborhoods and, and coming out movement that was created to give political power to white gay people, specifically white gay men who still to this day need, I mean, literally need to feel oppressed, you know? And I think that fighting because Dan White getting off for Harvey Milk's murder was absolutely a tragedy. Yes, that is a tragedy. We are talking about riding for a systemic, a systemic epidemic of Black people being killed. That does not diminish the fact that Harvey Milk should not have been murdered. But that means that you have to look at the grand scheme of what people are fighting for. People are fighting to be for a whole race, essentially, of people to be seen as human. It's absolutely not the same thing. Um, and it's it's always incensing to me. And I'm not going to just put it on white gay men. I'm going to put it on just white queers because it could be white gay men. It could be white trans women. It could be, I see it in a lot of different spaces. You know, this need to deny the real oppression of black people, specifically black queer people, specifically black trans women all the time. You know, I've been in situations where I've had to call out, you know, this is something that's being specific to me because I'm a black woman and I've gotten, well, I'm gay. 
okay, it's not the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's not the same thing. Um, and I think that to Arya's point about access and equity, you know, I was recently reading a book by um, four women who have been what we call power brokers in the Democratic Party. And they talked about how one thing that they were taught is that when, once you get into the space, you are supposed to immediately start looking around, calculating who's in the space, how many folks are not in the space, to start trying to make ways to get people into the space and, in, and to the table. Um, but I think right now in 2020, we are in a time of specific time where the world is crumbling around us. You know, buildings are burning. You know, businesses like whole corporate entities are going bankrupt because they've been out of business or closed for so long. You know, we have an opportunity right now to rebuild everything. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a church going person. And I, I, so I'm just going to give the, of course, necessary biblical reference to Noah and the ark. We have an opportunity to see this whole thing crash and fucking burn and rebuild it. But we have to be willing to do that work. We can't, we can't let the people that rebuild it be the ones who have the money to rebuild it immediately. We have to demand that we are there with them while we are, that we are rather doing the rebuilding. Um, and that sometimes is the work, you know, places like, I'm going to keep calling them the, the Castro, you know, I always call myself a, a West Hollywood gay because I came out in, in Southern California. So places like West Hollywood and some of the other gay districts, they're going to have to do the work as far as making those spaces equitable. So what is that? That's, that's um, affordable housing, you know, something that as a community we are thinking about, but we're thinking about making sure that these gay districts look like us, look like America, as Jesse Jackson used to say. So it, 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 there's there's so much into making a space or making a community equitable. And I think a lot of people right now in this moment, yes, you should listen to Black people, but there's so much more than just listening. Because I'll tell you right now, growing up in the church, I've also learned there's some Black folks who going to fight you. And I'm seeing that today. You have to really make sure that you are surrounding yourself with Black folks who are doing the work and who are about everyone and who are not being self-serving. Some people in our community do not have what we call the gift of discernment. And that is definitely going to be needed as we rebuild and create equitable, create equity and create access in the community. There's a lot here. <laughs> a lot to unpack. One of the things that I think we need to do is we need to dismantle this mindset that we have reached this level of freedom that is, I think, in a lot of people's faces. Uh, but when they see some atrocity happen, they go and protest, but then they go right back to doing the normal everyday thing. It is not enough to protest. It is necessary and I support it all day long. And I will not tell anybody how to protest. You do it whatever way you feel is fit. I, you do you. But we have to dismantle this view that things have ever been good, that things have ever been great, that is, this is just history repeating itself in a different way. This is nothing new. We've lived this, but we're not learning our lesson. And we continue to let the news cycle go. And then we forget it. And then somebody brings it to our attention or it's a year anniversary. And we're like, oh, let's sing Kumbaya. And then we go on. Another thing, and it was like when Ari was talking, there's like a number of things pop into my head. And one of the issues that I see we're facing right now is that we have a lot of groups that are really anti-pride right now because pride has never been a space that has welcomed everybody. And that is what I want to see break down so that everybody is a part of this space. But it's hard right now because 
there are so many people who are like, cops don't make me feel safe. Where is our trans representation? Where are people of color representation? This is not my space. And it makes me so disheartened when we have a community that is broken. And people want to get mad at those individuals who are shouting, these things are not okay. But at the end of the day, they're not the ones that are wrong. It's the pride organizers that are wrong because they're allowing it to continue. And as a pride organizer, I will put myself in that position to say, I'm here to make that change, but I haven't done it all yet. And so I'm taking responsibility to say, I still have work to do. And I think that's what we need people to do is take responsibility and say, I haven't done the shit. I haven't done the work. I have to do the work. And I can't sit here and say that, oh, I'm part of the community and I've got so much love and this, that, and the other. And then go to a board meeting every month and say, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And then three years down the line, we're still in the same position that we were, but it makes you feel good to say, I stand in solidarity. Um, to go back to conflating the two, people think when something looks similar, that it's got to be the same. Just because it feels similar, it looks similar, it does not mean that it's the same. And it's not the same struggle. It's not the same problem. But people want to feel connected somehow. And so they, they claim it as their own. This isn't y'all's. This, is this doesn't belong to you. We all know who this belongs to. And this belongs to Black lives. And it is okay to say Black lives matter. People always want to bring in, what about everybody else? Everybody matters. We all know this. Stop saying it. Everybody's tired of it. Black Lives Matter. Deal with it. If you can't say that, then you're a part of the problem. If you have a problem with putting that out on the forefront, you are the problem. And I don't have a problem telling people they are the issue. Um, and then another thing is, how do we create more equitable spaces? It's got to be from community activism, but it has to be a change in policies and it has to be supporting groups like Campaign Zero, who I don't know if you guys have heard about the eight can't wait when it comes to these are the eight steps that you could take to actually reduce the amount of killings done by cops, the amount of force that is used by cops. These are things that already should be done. And so taking into consideration that people are already doing this work, this work is already out there. People have been doing it forever, but paying attention to what people are doing and then putting our money and our, our support with those individuals who have already done the work. This isn't something new. This isn't something people weren't aware of. People are already out here fighting for our rights, but we are ignoring them and we have to stop. I'm sure there's like a ton of other things, but. There are. I want to be like, oh, okay, we're done with the program. Um, no, John. Uh, actually, I want to take off right where you, you were going, Natalie. And that was, okay. So the Commonwealth Club, we're doing what, a, a, you know, a lot of organizations are doing. We're looking root to branch, all that kind of stuff. It's like, what are we doing wrong? What can we do differently? In terms of programs, what would be a good program that you think we could do that would educate people who need to know something about some of the things you just mentioned? Was it Eight Makes Great or? It's Eight Can't Wait from eight. the Campaign Zero. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I mean, would, would, would that be something that if more people knew about it? Absolutely. Help and it, any other suggestions of, of things that we could do to use our platform, our bullhorn here? I think, uh, John, partnering with um, projects that have been doing that work, like Showing Up for Racial Justice, is a project that actually brings white folks together. And I believe it's conversation conversations led by white folks to white folks on sort of what is white supremacy and like 
because there's always when there isn't a political education um, people react emotionally. So whenever we talk about white supremacy, white people are like, what, what do you mean? I, I have a black cousin. I love black people and uh, I have a neighbor. And it's like, no, that's not, we're not talking about you. We're talking about how we have a culture. All of us engage in it, right? Violence against trans women is a part of white supremacy, right? So it is a culture that we all engage in. And so if we're to dismantle that and to actually show up for racial justice, um, you know, Commonwealth Club, I think, would be amazing at hosting a session in partnership with those projects that have been doing that work um, that can translate what we're saying to an audience that wants, um, wants to understand and needs the patience um, and the emotional capacity to support them in their um, paradigm shift. It's like, I think her name is Jane Elliott. She was the professor who would go into do those teachings on what racism actually was. And it was this white woman having this conversation with these white spaces. And so they started to feel uncomfortable, but it was quote unquote safe space for them to have those conversations. And sometimes you need to hear from somebody that looks like you so that it actually registers. So I 100% agree creating space for people to have those conversations because I know a lot of people of color are tired of having to have those conversations. We don't want to keep saying everything over again. I do want to add that I do think that education does need to extend to non-Black people of color as well. Um, Agreed. I'm, I'm, Agreed. You know, in San Francisco, a lot of times I have found that it has actually been API and Latinx folks mm-hmm. who uphold a lot of anti-Blackness by comparison to white folks. And they believe um, that they people of color, it doesn't count. Right. And that's always the go-to is, well, I'm a person of color too, or I'm an immigrant, you know, and, and that's there. And, you know, there's always this, uh, this assumption that, um, sorry, somebody can text me. Um, there's this assumption that, that we are playing oppression Olympics, that when we as black folks are in the space and we're saying, this is happening to black queer folks, this is happening to black trans people. It's like, Oh, well, I'm a person of color too. Like I, you know, I didn't mean it, and you, you guys are just playing into, you know, I'm having issues with this, or Latinx people are having issues with that. We're never not acknowledging that those issues exist, right? Um, I feel like I went on a tangent, but, wow. you know, I feel like we're not ever acknowledging, or not, we're not ever saying that uh, that oppression, first of all, oppression is a spectrum, um, and so everyone is experiencing oppression in some way, whether you're poor, or um, undocumented, like there are obviously levels um, and impact um, and that everyone is on the scale of oppression, right? Unless you're rich um, and part of the 1% and white, um, more than likely you're going to experience some form of oppression, but there's also sort of systemic, institutional, and social anti-Blackness. When we're addressing that, the understanding is that if we liberate Black folks, um, especially Black folks with intersectionality like Black, queer, and trans people, then everyone else is liberated too. But we cling to 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 our own stuff that we don't want to see where the other person is coming from. And so I think having those dialogues, um, those town halls, um, and those moments for people to to be unfiltered and, and, and have conversation and to begin a paradigm shift, would be absolutely necessary for Commonwealth Club going forward. 
And I think it'll make a difference um, in, in helping folks catch up to where um, Black folks for liberation are right now. And I just want to, you know, like throw into that. I cannot underestimate the importance of having white folks who do anti-racist work. You know, we we had a situation, you know, with Services of Pride when I was going through a tough time with a particular board member who I'm very, very close to. But it, I started to feel like I w- it wasn't really being heard when I was saying this thing is happening because of racial issues. And I said, look, we need to engage this other individual who is a community member, but who I know, know does anti-racist workshops and just work in the community. And, it, you know, as Natalie said, sometimes it does need to be heard from someone who grew up like you someone who was socialized like you, you know, we, we need to have the conversation about the ways in which white people are socialized, what is racist and what it means to be racist. You know, this idea that being racist is just being mean. If, if you're, if you're just nice, then you're not racist. And racist, racist as a slur that as soon as they hear it, they just get on defensive and they're not really listening to what you're saying. So it is important to have the Jane Elliott's of the world out there, you know, doing that work. Um, yeah. And the oppression Olympics is a real deal thing. You know, when you start throwing that that into the mix, when people start pulling out their different parts of their identity, that's a, a real, not game changer, but it, it amps up the conversation. Um, I can't believe it, but we we have, uh, we're almost through with our program. I know there was a lot there. Natalie, did you have anything to add to, to that? I, I think before we end, I just want to thank you all for letting me be a part of this conversation. And I, I want to do this every day, like have conversations with people who get it. You know what I mean? Like have conversations so that we can actually make some change. Um, but then I want that conversation to turn into action and I'm ready to get my hands dirty. You know, I'm ready to continue doing the work and I'm ready to bring in new voices and something that Carolyn said earlier is like looking around, seeing who's missing, but also looking around, seeing who could take your place because we want to build a generation and the next generation to be leaders in this movement. And I, I just hope that somebody watching is like, all right, I feel activated. I'm, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to do something. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, we, you know, we have about uh, eight minutes left. And John, I just wanted to check in with you to see if we had any other questions that you might be uh, taking from the audience. Well, it's not a question. And, and it, it's been in the chat room for a while. And we kind of talked about this already. I'll, I'll bring it up just because someone did say it. Uh, someone who says, Pride Month, when half of the people making bogus police calls on Black people identify as being gay. Gay people are practicing racism daily, but we should look right past that, huh? So someone echoing some of what we were talking about earlier of the, the racial problem within the LGBTQ community. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, personally, like for me, the... The work. I want to admit that the work is hard, and you constantly have to take yourself out out of it when you're a non-black person. Um, the flow of my social media feed from my own API community and their comments, especially centered around the looting and the resharing of uh, video clips of uh, you know black folks and and uh, the the destruction of buildings and all of that. And kept saying, you know, this is, this is, this is, why are they doing this? And they, and you know what they mean. Uh, and having to even uh, unpack that conversation and, and stop it and say, okay, well, why are you generalizing an entire community? 
um, you know, and then equating that to uh, criminal offenses or, or violence. Like, I think, I think that the dialogue, starting from the dialogue is super important, but I th- also think it, it's absolute time that we make some changes, like we, we've been saying. So to end the program, uh, it's the last six minutes. It is Pride Month. Um, I think we're all admitting that, you know, there's something here. There's something different about this time around. And I think there is an opportunity for us to do more. Uh, if you could just share your, your last final thoughts and some words for everyone who's going to listen, who's going to tune in, who's not Black, who's LGBTQ um, and other, and what we and we've talked about some specific things, but just uh, you know, I don't. It, maybe it's words of you could wag a finger, or you could you can inject words of hope. But we leave you with the last words, Aria. Um, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me speak freely today. Um, I yeah, my last words. Um, That sounds so dramatic, but (laughs) for me, it's really about um, coming from the nonprofit space and the social justice realm, um, having LGBT-led orgs really shift um, the the things that are happening in their organizations and um, having more than just one Black leader. um, Start with three, maybe go to five, you know, it, it's a process, um, but I think shifting that um, and, and bringing marginalized voices back into um, queer and trans efforts um, is it, it's the only way that we're going to be effective. Um, and I think everyone can advocate for that um, in their way and in their networks and in their workplaces, um, on their Zoom conference calls um, and having those conversations and not ignoring what's happening. Natalie. I mean, I'm going to shake a finger a little. Um, I think it's important that we continue to say that the problem still exists and, you know, we can sing Kumbaya and we can do a whole bunch of other things, but it doesn't really change anything. So like Ari said, like, check yourselves, check your orgs. Are they living up to what they stand, what they say they stand for? And I want people to stop having so many opinions about what they think is the struggle of Black individuals. I want people to just listen to the stories and just take them in and maybe you'll learn something and maybe it'll be less challenging for you the next time somebody says something to you about, you know, Black Lives Matter or why your organizations aren't running effectively or why people still don't feel like they have a seat at the table. Um, I I would just really like a lot of people to close their mouths, open their ears, listen first. I think we can't take action until you really begin to understand and like, let us do the work we need to do and allow us to, to really exist inside those spaces, not just be a token. Tokenizing has been a major problem in everywhere. Um, So that's my thing. It's just have faith that we, we got this and we need your support but we're gonna we're gonna do the work that we need to do and we'd love for you to come along in this journey but you've got to get to that space where you can understand what your role is wow thank you so much for that um and carolyn um i think that 
one thing that is very important to me, and I know this is something you and I have worked on, Michelle, we have a lot of Black women. I mean, we have three Black women right here who are in leadership positions in pride organizations. We have another incredible um, Black woman tomorrow with Ari and I, uh, Imani Rupert Gordon, who is the new executive director over at NCLR. And, you know, we have a lot of Black folks, and especially Black women who are in leadership. We need to do a better job of supporting each other. Um, you know, because we're in a time right now where people are seeing t-shirts and seeing hashtags that say support black women. So they'll put black women in leadership, but you have to actually listen to those people that you put in leadership and you have to let them lead. And, you know, sometimes that becomes hard when we are not also supporting each other. So we, we need to make sure we're having, I'm happy that we're having this conversation because a lot of the things that we're talking about are things that I think that we're all seeing either in our our organizations, our organizations around us. Um, I'm thankful for the conversation that we'll have tomorrow um, because I think we, more Black LGBTQ leaders need to be talking honestly about what's going on in our community. Um, and one thing that is not even LGBTQ specific, but that we need to do better when is we need to have better engagement with our our elders. You know, our elders went through a moment or a time where they were fighting so hard to have a seat at the table. Sometimes it's hard for them to support young folks who are now at the table. Um, and I always say that I was raised in this community by some incredible Black elders, whether it be from you know Los Angeles, whether it be from Oakland, whether it be from Detroit, whether it be from New York. But it's it takes a lot to be an elder. And a lot of times those communications get broken down and that, that also ends in loss of information. That, that ends in loss of legacy. So we need to strengthen our intergenerational communications. We need to strengthen our support system because as we're asking for more Black people to be in leadership in these white spaces, because these LGBT organizations are super white, we need to do a better job of supporting each other. And we need to defund police. What's that, Aria? And we need to defund the police. And that is... The defund San Francisco police. and uh, and that is the end of the program. Defund the police. Those are the last words. No, last words that will be spoken. <laughs> Those are the last words here on the program, at least the Michelle Miao show. Thank you so much to all of our panelists. Thank you to you who've tuned in, and please support the work, uh, the the or especially the organizations, the work of our panelists today, and then continue to do the work. Do something. Changes here. Changes now. John, you're on mute, John. Can- I, I have nothing to say worth worth hearing, I guess. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you to our panelists. It's great to see you. Uh, two of you are seeing you again. Natalie, nice to meet you. Um, and uh, thank you, everyone, everyone, for watching this and listening to this on the podcast um, with, with hopefully open ears and open minds and open hearts. That ends our program. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.